We're going to start something new today. Pop up that slide once of our series we're going to have for the next couple of months. By popular demand. You say, what's that all about? Have we become a, a on by request sermon church? No. I'm going to explain that right off the bat because when I, when I had this created by the guy who does that for us, that was one of my concerns that you would think that, that um, the way the church works is that uh, we just kind of, kind of like a radio station, you call it and say, would you play my favorite song? Now, uh, that's not what I mean by this. What, what I want to talk about for the next couple of months, actually, is we're going to address a number of different topics um, that are really unrelated, except for one thing. They're topics that come up over and over and over in my conversations with people from church. From, and, and Christian people as a whole, they're topics that people ask about, um, and I often seem to have to explain, or they're topics that people talk to me about because they seem a little confused at times, um, and that I want to try to do my best to show the biblical perspective on these things. And some of the topics, I will admit, are topics that, that people have asked me to talk about. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm kicking around uh, in the next couple of months teaching on two of them that people have asked me about. Um, one of those is somebody asked me, because it's Wisconsin, about, about um, not the church's perspective, because I don't really care about the church as much as I care about the Bible, but the Bible's perspective on drinking. Somebody asked me what I, recently, a number of people, what I talk about that. Someone else asked me what I talk about, about just what's it mean to be a Sabbath keeper in this day and age? And so what do we do that? We're New Testament, we're not Old Testament, and, and the world's changing so much that people work all the time on Sundays, and, and they were just asking me, what's that mean? So some of the kind of things I'm thinking about, a couple of them are ones people have talked to me about, but the majority of them are ones that I find myself engaged in conversations with people, and I recognize that there's some topics that, that need to be addressed because we need to understand this if we're going to be the church God wants us to become. Now, I really believe something about Portview. I believe God sits and smiles at us. I believe he loves us. I mean, like, like, we're, we're his followers. We don't have to earn anything with God, but, but I also believe this. I believe that God wants to always take us as an individual and us as a church from glory to glory, that he has greater things in store for us. Now, understand, greater doesn't just mean the way the world defines it. Greater meaning just more people in seats. Because I promise you, we can fill these seats, every single one of them, if we want, through compromise. We can do it. Just give away free beer. Look at the bars on Friday night. There's all kinds of things we can do. You laugh. There's other ways we can do that that aren't quite as funny, but, but um, we can do that. But that's not really our goal. Our goal is not to have empty seats. Our goal is to have full seats. But our goal is to have people whose lives are transformed by Jesus. And so um, we, want that, we want that to happen. And so I want to talk about some of the things that I believe God is trying to shape in us to make us into the people and into the congregation that God can use more greatly than he's using today. Used to help in your life, used to bring healing to people, and used to bring deliverance to people in, their, in the world around us, your friends, your families, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that you see are, are really bound and restricted and wrestling with problems, that God wants to form us in a different way so that we can be more, a, a more usable tool in his hands. And so those, those are some of the things I want to address in our kind of the series we're going to be doing for the next couple of months called By Popular Demand. And so today I'm going to talk about something that I see giving a lot of us, a lot of Christians, a lot of difficulty. Matter of fact, it's maybe the, the one topic that I spend more time addressing with people, especially people who have walked with God for some time, 
uh, that more than any other topic I seem to have to come back to all the time. And it's, it's kind of this. People wrestling with how a Christian, as a Christian, they are to, to involve themselves and interact with people who don't know Jesus yet or people who have just come fairly recently to Jesus. How do they interact with those people, especially if there's people who are living lifestyles that we would term, and I would say we're not wrong in terming it this way, the scriptures would describe it this way, as saying they have a, a, a pretty good involvement still with, with sinful lifestyle issues. How do we interact with that? How do we, what do we do about our kids with that? How do we how do, we do that? What, what should we do? And, and what I want us to understand is I think what happens in the church world a lot, and this just happens because we're people, is we, we form ideas, sometimes reactionary, we form ideas which become institutionalized in a church or in a system, it could be in your business or anywhere, and that gets, becomes institutionalized and we begin to attribute that, thinking that's the way God sees an issue. But I think what happens often is we really get off track and we have ideas that are a little different than God sees it, sometimes a lot different than God sees it. And so the way we correct that is that we go to the Word, the Word of God, and we let the Word of God shape us. We let the Word of God challenge us. And so a lot of times in this series, I'm going to be talking about things and there, it's going to be sometimes in your mind there's going to be some dissonance going on. You're going to go, but I really feel strong about this. But then we're going to bring the Word of God out and the Word of God's going to say it like this. And we have a choice to make. The choice is do we let our mind be renewed by the Word of God or not? Do we let God's Word reshape our thinking? Because this is what I know. The longer I serve God, I constantly have God reshaping my thinking. On spiritual matters, on biblical matters, I look at it and I go, I've always been really strong at this, and I go, wow, you know what? I kind of messed that up a little bit. Matter of fact, this summer, I asked my family if um, I kind of identified a, a kind of a, a, a theme of life, Christianity, that, that I've been real strong in, then I've kind of said, you know what? I'm not, I've kind of got off track on that a little bit. So I've been reading this really good series of books, um, and I asked my family, I said, hey, if I buy each one of us a copy of this book, um, would you guys go through it this, with this book with me this summer and we'll talk about it. It's nine chapters and every time we'll talk about it because I kind of feel like maybe I've, I've kind of steered you in a little wrong direction in this. And I want to I bring it back because I don't have that much time to, to help shape you, so I want to help shape you. So why is that? It's because we, sometimes we think we got it all together, but if you think you got it all together, you need to understand you don't because none of us do. God wants to always help us to grow and develop, Right? That makes sense? So how do we do that? We do that by interacting with the truth of the Word of God. So today, what I want to do is I want to start off by just giving a quick review of a couple different stories from Jesus' life and ministry because we want to look at Jesus as our model, correct? Correct? And I want to orientate ourselves towards what I want to call Jesus, a Jesus mindset. So I'm going to quickly go over a couple stories. They're stories you're really familiar with. When I get to the last one, then we're going to turn to it and read the last one. Because you're going to see there's a theme in all of them. And so I want to review them with you really quick. And if you've been around at all, you've heard some of these stories from Jesus' life and ministry. The first one is found in Mark chapter 5. And again, you don't have to turn there because we'll read the last one. And they're not all the same story, but they're similar. So the first one in Mark chapter 5, it tells about Jesus going to an area called the the area of of the Gerasenes. And he meets a guy who's a demoniac. A demoniac is a person who's literally possessed with multiple demons. Matter of fact, when Jesus, he gets in a boat, he goes across the lake, he comes to this region, the guy is living in the tombs in the graveyard, 
And it says he was such an out of control, such a demoniac man, so controlled by the, by the devil himself, by his demons, that they had tried to control this man in the communities. It didn't work. So they had bound him in chains. and said he broke the chains. They had done all kinds of things to control him. It didn't work. So he, he lives in the tombs all by himself, causing all kinds of chaos, chaos, cutting himself, it says. You know, he's just living this horrible, tormented life. Jesus comes on the scene, comes in a boat across the lake. He gets out. The man with the, with the demons, which he, Jesus talks to, and the demons identified himself as the legion, many demons, confronts Jesus. Jesus talks to the guy, and the demons say, can we go out of this guy and go into a herd of pigs? Jesus lets them do that. The, the demons flee this man. They go into the herd of pigs. The pigs run into the sea and drown. And with the, the scene closes uh, before they drive Jesus out. It's interesting. The, the townspeople got to get rid of him. Not because he set somebody free, but because they lost their livelihoods. Uh, you know what? Jesus sometimes costs you things from the world to give you something better. That's one thing that better reshape our thinking, especially in America. But it ends with this man, it says, seated and in his right mind, and clothed, and Jesus gets in the boat to leave. Jesus came, does it, gets in the boat to leave immediately. And uh, so he went across the sea just to do this. And, uh, and the man says, can I come with you? And he says, no, no, you can't come with me. Go back to your family and tell them how I have shown you mercy. And so that's, that's the first story. Second story we find in John chapter 4, and it's about a woman that Jesus meets at a well. And it's, just, it's not just any woman, it's a Samaritan woman. And without knowing context of history, it might not seem like a big deal. But in the context of history, it, it's a really big deal. Because first of all, this is a Samaritan person. And it's the Jews and the Samaritans had no interactions. They hated each other, kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. And they really, they hated each other. They wanted to kill each other just about. They despised one another. They wouldn't talk to one another. They wouldn't eat with one another. So don't think that racism is something new. Um, it's not. It's human. It's wrong, but it's human. And so um, they meet. The disciples are off doing some other stuff. Jesus sees her. And um, not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a woman. And remember, ladies, she was, she was a woman. And back in that day, being a woman didn't mean the same thing as being a woman for you today. One thing I don't understand about our culture today is how especially feminists are oftentimes anti-Christian. One of the greatest things that's ever happened to women in the history of the world is Christianity. Because Jesus supports and he elevates women. He says, matter of fact, he says there's no Jew or Greek, male nor female, female bond nor free. He says, listen, we're, we're the same. And uh, here's a woman and a Samaritan woman, and in that day, women were at best property. That's why you see in Scripture, they could just, if you got tired of her, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Because she's just property. And, and we understand Jesus was saying that, no, there's so much more. And so Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well, and, and they're talking about getting water out of the well. And she's like, well, Jesus said, I'll give you water so you never thirst again. And he's talking about eternal life in her. And she doesn't really get what's going on. She's like, how can you get water out of the well? You don't even have a thing to get the water out of the well with. You're not greater than the father Abraham who gave us this well, and, and going on and on and on. And, and finally he says to her, he says, uh, go get your husband and come. And she says, well... I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right, you don't have a husband. Matter of fact, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And she says, I understand you're a prophet. She gets that. Matter of fact, she ends up going to town, getting the people, and said, is it possible this is the Messiah? That Jesus interacts in this, in this situation. Another story, John chapter 8. It's a story of a woman caught in the very act of adultery. 
We have a story. Jesus is there and all of a sudden this group of religious leaders, self-righteous religious leaders, come to Jesus and they have this woman. It's interesting again. They have the woman. They don't have the man. Because the way society looked at it then, that you know that she was just property and she should be held accountable. And, and so they bring him to Jesus. They want to see what he's going to do with her because the Old Testament law says she should be killed. She should be stoned to death for what she did, for being caught in adultery. And so they bring her to Jesus and, and he takes the woman. The woman comes there and, and they basically want to catch Jesus in a trap and say, what should we do with her? Should we kill her? And they want to see what he's going to do. And Jesus, it says, stoops down and he begins to write in the dirt. And you know what's interesting? I've heard people preach sermons on he writes in the dirt. Friends, if God cared what he wrote in the dirt, he would have told us. That's not the point of the story, what he wrote in the dirt. The point of the story is what happens in the story. Because he doesn't tell us what's in the dirt. And they say, what should we do? And finally he stands up and he says, the one of you who has no sin, cast the first stone. And it's interesting, it says from the oldest to the youngest, they one by one walk away. And he says, where are your condemners? And she, she says, I have no condemners. They're all gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he doesn't just say go and live the same lifestyle. He says, go and change, become better, sin no more. One more story and then we'll read one together. Story of a guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you know, it's kind of funny in church. I didn't grow up in church, but when I came into church and then I started doing kids things and, and found out there's this whole history of culture of how churches run and found out that people would sing songs about this guy. Kind of funny because they make him out to be a funny guy, but really he wasn't a funny guy at all. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And they sing songs, though Zacchaeus was a little a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Climbed up into a sycamore tree to see what he could see, you know. And, but Zacchaeus was just, he was a little guy, but he was a little guy who was a wicked man. He was a tax collector. These people hated him. He was an extortioner. He extorted from his own people to give to Rome. Uh, people hated him. He was a traitor against his country. He was a thief and a liar because he was a tax collector. In that day, they extorted more than they were supposed to collect from the government. And so he's a very wealthy man. And he's up in the tree to see Jesus walk by in the crowd. And Jesus stops in the middle of the crowd, surrounded by a bunch of really, really good, self-righteous, uh, church-going people. And he looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Today I'm going to have lunch in your house. He goes to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus is so transformed by the interaction with Christ that he comes to recognize his need for Christ. And we know that because he gives away half his wealth and he said, if anybody I've wronged, I'll give them more than I ever wronged them. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. But it's interesting, the crowd around him, the, the religious crowd around him that day, uh, grumbled about this because they said Jesus um, was being a guest of a sinful man. He was going to this guy's house. Why isn't he coming to my house? I'm a good guy. He's a bad guy. Why is he spending time with that bad guy? One more story. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. The story about Jesus calling Levi. We know him as Matthew. Matthew and Levi are the same guy, so you get that straight. Matthew, who's going to be one of Jesus' disciples. Calling Matthew, who is like Zacchaeus. Everything we said about Zacchaeus is true about Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. He's a traitor against his people. He's an, an extortioner. And he's a, he's a cheat. And he's despised. And so think about that. That's who Jesus is calling here. Matthew, chapter, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, that's Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in this tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And it happened that he was reclining, and now understand there's a little time gap here, so he follows him. Now we find themselves at Matthew's house, Levi's house. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his home, in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, with all those stories as our foundation, let's talk about a few things that we find in these stories that can help us kind of reshape our thinking and have a, have a Jesus type of mindset. That's what we want. Is that what you want today? You want a Jesus mindset. That's what I want for me today. The first thing when I look at the story is I think of this. Jesus says in this story, the one we just read, and it's, it's the baseline through all the rest of the stories, Jesus says he came for the sick. And in Mark, um, in Mark chapter 2 here, we see that he uses the term sick and sinners interchangeably. He calls them sinners at one time and sick as the other time. So Jesus came for the sick or the sinners. Right? We got that? Here's the question we have to think about then. Who then is a sinner? Or who then, rather is this way, who then is sick? Who is sin sick and needs Jesus? Because Jesus said, I came for the, the, the ones who are sinners, not the ones who are righteous. Or we're going to understand, really, think they think they're righteous. Who then is sick? And the answer I want you to understand today is the foundation we're going to talk about is when Jesus said, I came for the sick, he was talking about every one of us. You know the old story, when you point at somebody, watch out because you point, there's three more pointing back at you. That's what he's trying to get us across for us this morning. Now when he came for the sick, he came for all people. You see, scripture says this very clearly. It says there is none righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. No, there are none righteous, not even one. That Jesus uh, can, can bring... Um, Spiritual, Jesus wants to come into our lives and bring spiritual life and spiritual health to the world for every single one of us because every single one of us is in need. Every single person enters this world as a sin-sick sinner. Now, you might not have thought about your poor, precious baby that way. But when your baby was born, it came into this world as a sin-sick sinner. Now, when we came to Christ... And hopefully you've done that, and some of you maybe haven't, and you still are going to. But when we come to Christ, what happens is we go from being a sinner, according to the Bible, to becoming a saint. You know what? If you've asked Christ in your life, tell the person next to you, say, I'm a saint. You do that if you have Christ in your life. Tell the person next to you, say, I'm a saint of God. Because some of you don't believe that about yourself. But you came through the world as a sin-sick sinner, but you became a saint. You became one who is forgiven. And now in a covenant relationship with God, and yes, we still struggle with sin and we struggle with temptation, but we are not slaves anymore to our old sin nature. So Jesus, although we were a sinner, makes us a saint. We be Jesus, through Jesus, he brings freedom into our lives, correct? All right. But let's remember. We came into that relationship from sinner to saint. 
all because of the grace of God. The Bible says this, says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast or brag. You've been saved as a result of Jesus' activity in your life, not according to your works, so that you can't brag about it. Friends, he wants us to understand this, that he chose you, that he chose me, that we did not choose him. We only came to know him by his grace because he chose us and we responded to his call to come to him. See, all people start out life spiritually sick and spiritually separated from a relationship with God, but Jesus, the great physician, pursues us so that we can find forgiveness and healing. He's the pursuer. We're needy. We're sick. He pursues us. When he finds us and we respond, we go from sinner to saint and we can rejoice in that new relationship. Now here's one of the things we need to think about. Because that is all true, therefore, there is no place for those who know God for any spiritual arrogance. There's no place for any spiritual superiority. There's no place for any spiritual judgmentalism towards those people who have yet to be changed by the grace of God in Christ. Because we all started in the same place. And God pursued us not because of who we are, but because of who is. God rescued us because he gave us the life rope and we simply clung on to it. And so we cannot brag about what's happened in our life. And so we can therefore not, with any sense of arrogance, with any sense of spiritual superiority, or any sense of judgmentalism, um, look down our spiritual noses at any person who is yet to come to find the grace of God in Christ. You understand what I'm saying? So all people, apart from Christ, are sin-sick and need a Savior. Jesus knows every single person needs Him. We got that? Now then, let's ask another question. How does Jesus act towards sin-sick people? How does Jesus act towards spiritually hurting and sin-sick people. And this is what I want us to see today. How does Jesus act towards people with that label? How does he act toward those who have not yet come into a relationship with him and therefore often have really complicated and messy and painful life situations and entanglements and involvements that we know that God does not want for people who follow after him? How does Jesus interact with those people, how does he, what does he think about them? How does he react and how does he interact with people like the demoniac who is violent and naked and aggressive and uncontrolled? How does Jesus act with people like the woman caught in adultery and the woman at the well who had many sexual partners and were living even with someone they were not married to? How does Jesus act towards that? How does Jesus act towards a Zacchaeus or a Matthew? who are traitors and extortioners and greedy and uncaring. How does he act towards those people? How does Jesus act towards these obviously spiritual, empty, and needy and sinful people? Here's how he acts. He goes out of his way to seek them out and to offer them acceptance and forgiveness and restoration. He goes out of his way to offer them acceptance which has to come first so that they can then find forgiveness and they can be restored. 
He goes out of his way to give them acceptance and forgiveness and restoration. How do we know? The stories tell us so. We're letting the word of God reshape our thinking. He crossed a lake, just administered to a demoniac, then he got in a boat and left. He went out of his way. He took the time in a busy ministry schedule to sit with a woman at the well, to break all cultural norms, to tell her that there was real life in him, real living water that could change her for eternity. He went out of his way. He called little Zacchaeus out of the sycamore tree, if it was a sycamore tree, down to eat lunch with him. Out of all the crowd, he could have chose anybody else, but he chooses Zacchaeus, and he took the time to have lunch with him, and it says salvation came to his home. Friends, this is the truth. It was said, and it's still said, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. A friend of people gripped by the things that are obviously contrary to what God says in his word is good and right. He's a friend to people who are entangled by sin. He becomes their friend. And not only that, he goes out of his way to become their friends. Now it's really interesting as we look at these stories in the Bible of Jesus becoming a friend of sinners, overtly going out of his way to become a friend of sinners. It's interesting that different people groups of his day viewed this quality of Jesus differently than the other people groups of the day. Those who knew that they were in spiritual need, that they were termed the notorious sinners of the crowd, of the area, no one doubted if they knew that they were sinners. Everybody knew they were sinners. They knew they were sinners. But the notorious sinners says they flocked to Jesus. Look at verse 15 of the text we read from from Mark chapter 2. It says, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. You know what? People always talk about the world's getting worse and worse, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. Our society is, but societies always have been bad. That there were still, back in Jesus' day, many notorious sinners. And so Jesus, that crowd flocked to Jesus. He eats and he drinks with tax collectors and sinners and the people didn't like that, the the religious people. But what about the other crowd? To those who were religiously self-righteous, and I choose that word on poor purpose, self-righteous, thinking their righteousness stemmed from themselves, from their own hard work, their own religiosity, their own spiritual effort. Those who were religiously self-righteous who thought that their self-effort and religious dedication somehow earned them or they deserved acceptance by God because of it, that those who they, they realized, they didn't yet realize, maybe they were born and raised in such a situation that they never even realized that they really were sinners or who had been set free so long ago that they forgot where they came from, that those self-righteous folks, it says, hated Jesus. Why? Because... He was a friend of sinners. That's why they hated him. Because he was a friend of sinners. See, they wanted nothing to do with those bound by sinful lives. They were the ones in the crowd that when they saw, the Pharisees were the ones, historically, that when if they saw somebody who was a notorious sinner, they wouldn't even look at them because they said, I can't even look upon you because of my righteousness. But God, on the other hand, when he sees a sinner, gets in a boat, goes all the way across the lake, finds the person, spends time with them, sets them free, and goes back his own way. Jesus goes out of his way where the self-righteous actually would turn their back on him. Jesus never turns his back on a sinner. 
That group wanted nothing to do with those bound by sin. But Jesus ran to those people to set them free. In fact, he says he sought them out. Out of a whole crowd, he picked Zacchaeus up in a tree. Why did he pick the most notorious guy? Because he wanted to show he's a friend of sinners. Now this brings me to the heart of what I want to talk about today. Since Jesus is a friend of sinners, shouldn't we be also? Shouldn't we teach our children to be also? You know how you turn out? Biggest part of how you turn out as an adult? It's how you're taught as a kid. Pastor Paul and I deal with this all the time. We're always talking about, well, I was raised this way and that really has formed who I am because we're always trying to, we're trying to get better all the time. And this is true. Shouldn't we also be friends of sinners and shouldn't we also teach our children to be friends of sinners? Shouldn't we go out of our way to seek and to save the lost just like Jesus did? Shouldn't our church be a place where people who don't know Jesus yet and have all kinds of entanglements in their lives, shouldn't it be a place where they are welcome, where they are accepted, where they are loved, and they are healed as they're brought into a relationship with Jesus? I think so. Don't you? If the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit of God dwells in us, shouldn't we act and think like God Himself? And God Himself is a friend of sinners. So shouldn't this place in our lives, shouldn't our homes be a place where sinners are welcome? But it's not so easy to, to get our arms around this anymore. Because we have, we have years and years of history. In the church world, we have a culture that's established and it's based upon what happened last generation and the generation before. And that's only natural. I said, Pastor Paul and I wrestle with we are who we are because of how we are raised. Well, we do the same thing in the church world. We wrestle with who we are because of what we've come from in the past. And I, as I look at this dilemma, I, I look at the situation in the church, I see that we have a dilemma on our hands today. And here's our dilemma. Our culture is drastically and rapidly changing right before our eyes. More rapidly than ever in the history of humanity. Things we never dreamed would be acceptable are now flaunted publicly and praised. There is no longer an underlying Judeo-Christian ethic that pervades our culture. It doesn't exist anymore, hardly at all. You see, for generations in our country, in America, there was this strong Judeo-Christian ethic, which I'll boil down basically to say this, a belief that at the minimum, at least the Ten Commandments were correct and people should live according to them. So as a general rule in culture, people understood that they shouldn't lie, steal, kill, commit adultery, you know, and they should honor God. But that was the underlying premise of the American fiber of American culture. That existed very strongly in our culture. To the point, understand this, because it's not a, it's a positive and negative, but to the point that even the many people who really didn't have faith in Christ, and a lot didn't, they still lived by the values of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And that had a, a very profound and real and a positive effect on our society as a whole. But as the song says... The times they are changing. The times they are changing stronger and faster than they ever have before. So today, there's very little left of the underlying Judeo-Christian ethic in American society. And as a result, people live lives of much greater sin entanglement than they lived in times past 
in our culture, I'm not saying other cultures haven't had it, other cultures do, but in our experience, people live lives of much greater sin entanglement and they live this way now publicly and without shame. They don't get embarrassed anymore by things they do that in the, one generation ago they would never have admitted publicly. Now it's just, it's just open. Now lifestyle choices that would have never been accepted a few years back are publicly celebrated, not just allowed. So in turn, more people involve themselves in lifestyles that entangle and complicate and harm them than any generation before in our country. And friends, here's the result. Result from this is that, um, that, that is so important for us to grasp is that today, when we share the love of Christ with a person who doesn't know Jesus, when you invest into people's lives relationally and spiritually and then invite them to understand spiritual things, maybe by inviting them to church, when you invest in them and invite them knowing that you want them to find forgiveness and you want them to find an eternal relationship with Jesus, that when you do that today, they come with a lot more baggage than people did only a generation ago. In the past, even though the majority of our society really didn't have a genuine relationship with Jesus, still they lived by his teachings because society valued and taught them and it was the norm. So when a person, even a generation or two ago, came to know Jesus, for the most part, you know, salvation and forgiveness was just as miraculous as it is today. It still takes the, the absolute miracle of God to find salvation, but their lifestyle didn't necessarily have to change that much because they already somewhat lived by the Judeo-Christian ethic that was America. But today, when people start to respond to the call of God to come to Him in their life, they come from a belief system and a lifestyle of incredible entanglement. And church, this is what we need to understand about this. When people with great entanglement and complication come into our lives and come into our church, we need to be like Jesus. We need to be friends of sinners. When people come into our lives and into our church and move in the house next door that, that, that have great entanglement and great complications and live lifestyles that a generation ago would not even have been accepted and today is flaunted, we need to be like Jesus and be friends to sinners. We need to go out of our way to love and to accept. We need to be gracious and we need to be extremely patient because it's going to take a long time for their lives to get untangled. Now God really spoke to me about this a while ago. And I was praying about this and he gave me a word picture in my mind and I don't know if I can say as much as to say it was a vision, but I was thinking and praying about this. But he gave me a picture in my mind of what people's lives are like when they're coming to him. And they've always been what I'm going to describe, but the ball, the ball of yarn that we're going to talk about is just so much bigger and more messed up today than it was even a generation ago in America. You see, the Lord showed me that when people come to him today, their lives are a lot like this ball of yarn. They're all entangled, they're all messed up, they're all big and messy and knotted, and you try to get the thing straightened out, and it's, it's really just a mess, and you try, to, you try to get where the end is, and I tried to find the end of this thing early. I can't even find the end of it. You're trying to untangle this thing, and, and it's just a huge, gigantic, knotted ball of, of mess, 
And that's how people come to God. And in the past, maybe what their life was like when it came to Jesus looked kind of like this, and it was a knotted mess, but it wouldn't take as long to get the knot out. But today when we come to Christ, because of the lifestyle, because of the community or the society we live in, the ball of yarn, the mess is a whole lot bigger. It's big and it's messy and it's knotted and it's all tangled. And when we come to Jesus today, what he's doing in our lives, and he's always done, but it's just a bigger knot now, is he begins to very lovingly and graciously begin to untangle our lives and begin to take out the knots and figure out all the problems and help us work through things. And, and this is what he was saying to me. He saying, Mark, the, knot, the ball of yarn, the knot is a lot bigger today because of where they come from. And because of that, it takes a lot longer to untangle the mess. You see, a generation ago, the entanglement wasn't as bad as it is now. The salvation is just as real. The miracle is just as great to come to Christ. But the entanglement wasn't as bad because society lived by this understanding of Judeo-Christian realities and now we don't anymore. And so the entanglement, the mess, the, the sin involvement is so much greater. And today when a person comes to, to Christ, usually their lives is very complicated and very messy. So a person really, understand what I'm going to say today, a person really can find forgiveness and salvation in Jesus and still have a whole bunch of entanglements left in their life. And what God does is He lovingly comes and He untangles them. And you know what else He does? He uses us to untangle them. Remember the story of Jesus and Lazarus? When Lazarus is in the tomb, dead, people said, don't bring him out, he stinks. And Jesus said, roll away the stone. They rolled away the stone. And Lazarus comes hopping out, all tied up in the grave clothes. One of the most telling parts of the whole story is he tells the people around him, you go and wrap him. Go untangle him. He says, you know what, I even use, I use you as a church to help people work through this stuff. Not to condemn, not to judge, but to lovingly guide and point to the Word of God and allow the knots to be worked out of the person's life. And there's a lot of knots in a person's life today. So friends, ever increasingly, the people that God will bring into your life and into our church will have a lot of complications. And we need to love like Jesus loves and lead them to Jesus and then be very patient so that if that ball of yarn is being untangled, we're there to help and not to hurt. We're there to help and not condemn. We're there to help and not be over-spiritually judgmental. We're there to, to help them untangle it. We need to help people untangle lives where their, where their living situations are tangled up when they come to Christ and it takes a while to untangle them. We need to help people patiently and lovingly and you're going to, don't, don't kill me for saying this, but it's the reality of who's going to live next door to you and who God's going to bring in our church who come to Jesus and really want Him and their lives are entangled with, with sexual orientation issues because society has taught them that it's all right and it's not only right, it's right. And it's going to take a while to untangle some of those things. The church world's been horrible at that. The church world's been terrible at it. We say, that's wrong. It is wrong. But it takes a while to untangle the messes. We need to be God's hand in untangling people where their lives are full of habits and addictions. And God is slowly working those addictions out of their lives, free from alcohol, free from drugs, free from complications, free from addictions to, to pornography, all those different things that God is that God is working out of their lives. We patiently partner with God 
in helping them come to Jesus. They come to Jesus and it still takes time to work the stuff out. And friends, let's not forget something. Let's not forget that that process is still supposed to be going on in each one of our lives. That we still have some knots that need to be untangled by the loving hands of Jesus in our lives. I know I do. We call it progressive sanctification. That's the theological term for it that we believe in. Progressive sanctification. Continually progressing in the development of Christ-likeness in our lives. Progressing, progressively, step by step, becoming more like Jesus. And I'm so glad that Jesus isn't done with me yet. Because I'm not happy with where I'm at. God loves me where I'm at. But I want to get more. I want to get better. You know, he has untangled some pretty big messes in my life and some big, big messes in all of your lives. But there are still some that need to be worked out in all of us. And I'm glad that God is gracious with me. And so shouldn't we in turn be gracious with others? Friends, this should be a place, your home, this church, where sinners are welcomed and accepted and helped. Where you can bring those with the most messed up lives so they can meet the Savior and He can start to untangle their lives. This should never be a place of self-righteousness or judgmentalism because all of us know that before Jesus rescued us, we were just lost sinners also. Right? Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together. I just want to pray this morning for all of us, starting with me, that Jesus would help us to grow and always become more like Him. Lord, as we've interacted with Your Word today, we've seen this repetitive situation from Your life where You went out of Your way to love on people who were the most messed up in society. That You were gracious and You were loving. You challenged them to get better, but You loved them for who they were. I ask this, Lord Jesus. Cause our thinking to be shaped by your word today. God, we all, everyone, every one of us, me also, God, we all have some rewiring to go on in our minds as you wash over our minds with your word. Because, God, our society is changing so rapidly right before our eyes and things that we just held strong to, we never thought would ever happen are happening right in front of our face. And, God, we need to know how to to adjust, not to ever adjust from your truths of your word, but to how to understand how to, ad- how to adapt your word to a changing society. How to live in a changing society. We're the ones who need to understand how does your unchanging truth look in a changing world. And I pray, Holy Spirit, by your word you begin to wash our minds kind of reshape our thinking. God, I even pray this this morning. Bring to our minds friends and family whose lives are all tangled up and show us how you want to use us to help them come to know you. And then to use us to help them get untangled. And God, help us to understand that you don't untangle them before they know you. But they come to know you 
through grace and love and acceptance. And then you begin to untangle the mess. Help us to be patient the way you're patient with us. God, we love your patience in our lives. And God, I implore, give us your patience for other people in our lives so that we can be like you. That in that progressive process of sanctification of becoming more like you, that today, God, the washing of the Word in our minds would cause us to think more like you that would then cause us to act more like you in this world. Father, we love you. We open up our hearts to you today and we say, God, we want to, be, we want to just be putty in your hands. We want to be the, the, the clay on the potter's wheel so you can mold us and shape us that we could really become the people in the church that you could use mightily to raise children that will never turn their back on you, to restore marriages and Lord, and to build marriages that are strong and never shaken. God, to be men of God who rise up and are leaders and women of God who rise up and they lead for You. Then God, to reach a culture and a community around us that's desperate and in need. Shape us, God, so we would be that place. We would be that, those people.